Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today's episode is an interview I did a few months ago on the Radically Genuine podcast. We posted about this interview on our Instagram feed back in August, but I suspect that most of you haven't yet heard it. I think of all the podcast interviews I've done, this one might be the most interesting and relevant for all of you. In this interview, I discuss the deep structural problems with current psychiatry, the confusion around psychiatric treatment, diagnoses, and nosology, controversies and mistaken beliefs about psychiatric meds, problems with informed consent and involuntary treatment, why med management is doomed to fail, psychedelics as a portal into psychospiritual and trauma healing, pearls about ketamine treatment, and other topics. So happy listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Really interesting guest today before we get into introductions. You know, he actually, before we got started, he considered this to be an anti-psychiatry podcast. And I'm going to correct him on that. I'm not anti-psychiatry. I am pro-science, pro-ethics, pro-informed consent, and really fascinated and interested in having in-depth conversations when it comes to the health and well-being of people who are really struggling. I believe the guest we have today has the background, the experience, and he's outside the mainstream enough to get into some, I think, fascinating discussions that are not typical to people who are receiving psychiatric treatment. But I'll be honest, I have a love-hate relationship with his podcast. I like his podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, there'll be moments like, I'm, he gets it. This is fascinating. And he's got, he's got areas of expertise that, I'm, that I don't have. So I'm trying to learn from him in areas around like psychedelics and, and so forth. And he speaks towards spirituality and he's got this open mind. He brings in interesting guests. And then I'll listen to another podcast. And I'm like, this just sounds like the same old stuff. So I can't wait to get into some of the, the questions about that. He kind of sounds like he's confused sometimes. He's all over the place. So but we can get into some of those conversations. I want to welcome Dr. Craig Heacock to the podcast. He's an adolescent adult and addiction psychiatrist in Fort Collins, Colorado, where he also hosts and produces a psychiatric storytelling podcast called Back from Abyss. I do highly recommend this podcast. He has a special interest in the use of ketamine and psychedelics to treat mood disorders and PTSD. And he was also a co-therapist in the and the MAPS Phase 3 MDMA trial. So this is just an area that we're going to start venturing into on the podcast from an educational perspective and with an open mind. He is a graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He did psychiatry training at Brown University. We are bringing in physicians, psychiatrists onto this podcast because we all benefit from having healthy debate We benefit from being able to examine the nuance and try to inform people who are in the mental health system, who are struggling, who are trying to improve their life and well-being. We all benefit from healthy debate and discussion, and I am certainly against any time we push people to the extremes. That's why I'm not anti-psychiatry. Dr. Craig Heacock, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Oh, that was a really sweet intro. And... um yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I have to admit, I've been a little nervous this week, but our little talk before we started recording, I feel better now. <laughs> Good. I think sometimes that people have a, a misunderstanding of what my, my purpose is and what my goal is because I can be so outspoken. I often get that initial reaction. But as I said, I'm hoping for really 
uh, nuanced, reasonable discussion today. We can ask difficult questions. We can say where we don't know, uh, because I think both of us are certainly, as you said, coming on here, we're on the same team and we care about people. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to improve the lives of others. But you, you reached out to me. So let me just start with that. I was you know, interested in what motivated you to come on the Radically Genuine podcast. And then if you can just tell my listening audience a little bit about you and your background. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I first became aware of some of the critiques and commentary on psychiatry through Will Hall, who was on Psychedelics Today. I think three years ago, they did a two-part interview with him. And he laid out a whole bunch of critiques about psychiatry, which got me sort of riled up. But I also thought, you know, I agree with some of this. So I, I, since then, I've started just kind of keeping my keeping my eye on and ear on, you know, what are people saying about psychiatry? Because it, it's, you know, I've devoted my life to it and I believe in it. And I also believe it has a ton of flaws and problems and we're struggling through the muck for sure. But in my experience, most of the psychiatry critics are not mental health experts. And then I stumbled upon your podcast and I thought, this guy is smart. He's well-spoken. He's a psychologist. And as I told you before we started recording, I have to admit, I have a huge bias towards psychologists. I actually love some of my best, most favorite people are psychologists. So I liked you already from that. But then when I listened to a couple of your episodes, I thought, I really want to talk to him. I don't want to argue or yell or debate or you know win or you know i want to just sit down and have a conversation because i think i think there's so many things that we agree on i think there's things we don't agree on and that might be really interesting for people to hear today not that you know i'm going to convince you or you're going to convince me but just that there can be two well-educated professionals on the mental health field who maybe don't agree on all the tactics but that we can talk about it and we can yeah have a reasonable discussion and just try to understand where we come from Love it. Um, now you're a little bit outside what we see in at least my region as, you know, typical psychiatry. I mean, I, I think you're aware of that it's kind of transitioned itself into DSM diagnoses and handing out prescriptions fairly quickly, monitoring meds, and then often adding more and more prescriptions, shifting diagnoses, and so forth. The outcomes are, you know, astonishingly poor in. Um, you know, a lot of like research trials and what we see in community-based settings, we, we don't see really like strong recovery rates. We do see some, you know, symptom reduction or modification in certain conditions, but all available evidence to us suggests we had a long way to go and people need to be more informed. I want to just get a sense of your, your journey in this and where you are now. Yeah. Well, I think my interest in this area in sort of psychiatry, what is it? What do we do? I mean, really started in residency and I went to a residency that celebrated therapy. We had, I mean, it was, I mean, yeah, we learned psychopharmacology and medical uh, diagnostics, but we spent a ton of time doing therapy and therapy was celebrated. And I remember the first letter to the editor I ever wrote to a psychiatric journal was about this whole idea of psychiatrists calling themselves psychopharmacologists. Mm. And, um, and I wrote, and this is back, you know, like in, when was like 2002 and I wrote the journal, I said, this is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea for for people to think of themselves as psychopharmacologists, for people to use that term, because it would be like if, like if landscape architects started saying, you know what, we are um, soil managers, you know, or if, you know, general contractors said, you know, we're going to be toilet mechanics. It's like, wait, why limit the beauty and the complexity down to just, um, medicine. So that, that said, I think medicines can be game changing. And I think that's a place that maybe you and I don't agree, but this whole idea of med management is 
I think is insane. And it's one of the things I talk about a lot in my podcast. I try to give examples of people healing. There's no healing through med management on the podcast. I mean, there are people who heal with meds as part of the picture, but you know, one of the things I'm trying to paint is that, I mean, I often tell my patients, like if this is the jigsaw puzzle of your treatment, maybe these two pieces up here are your meds and this is your sleep and this is your weed addiction and this is your relationship and this is your exercise and this is your diet and it's all part of it. And, you know, we're going to talk about all of it, but this whole idea that in psychiatry that you, you can manage psychiatric illness with meds primarily is largely insane. Um, Yeah. Let's start with, um, you know, I was listening to a very interesting podcast you had with one of your colleagues who I think was part of the outside of Boulder. I can't recall his name, but Will Vanderveer. Yeah. I thought it was great podcast. I mean, I do, you know, I found that one fascinating and I think you opened it up by asking, you know, what is wrong with psychiatry? And, uh, is it Will? Will said, Mm -hmm. um, well, it starts with basically it's the diagnostic system and the treatments, mm-hmm. <laughs> Gener- generally speaking. Yeah. Um, so what, what are you critical of when it comes to your, your field as far as the diagnostic system and its conventional treatments? Yeah. Well, as I said to Will, I was joking, but I wasn't really joking. I said in that episode, I said to Will, I said, I think the DSM could really just have a, maybe five diagnoses, maybe six. And it, and it would be the state of the art, what we understand about the brain and mental and psychiatric illness now to have five or six diagnoses and the, the splitting to come up with all these BS diagnoses, like intermittent explosive disorder, social anxiety disorder, you know, um, it's, it's all fake. Like, you know, I mean, they're real pain, but they mean nothing, you know? Um, and even, you know, we'll probably get into this, but I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is you know, in the whole placebo antidepressant thing is that um, psychiatry not only has a huge classification problem, understanding, we have a huge naming problem. So, and I did an episode on this, I don't know if you heard it, but I did an episode on how all the names we use in psychiatry are wrong. So the meds that we call antidepressants, SSRIs, mostly don't work for depression. The meds we call mood stabilizers, mostly don't stabilize mood. The very best antidepressants are the atypical antipsychotics, which actually are very poor antipsychotics. And the very best mood stabilizer by far is an antipsychotic. So, and I could go on and on, but so we have this whole confusion where we talk about things like as if antidepressants were a thing or, or, you know, MDD were a thing, but, but everything is just mushy and, and it doesn't even mean what we think it means. So, um, there's a psychiatry podcast called the Carlat Report, which I like a lot. And I've written him a few times because he's always talking about antidepressants, this antidepressants, that. And I say, what are you talking about? Like, what does that mean? Like, you, are you, do you mean SSRIs? Because I said, you, you know, those are not really antidepressants. He said, yeah, but that's what the general population thinks. I said, well, we need to be good with our words and not just throw out, out these meaningless titles. Yeah, don't you think that there's a major major problem with credibility in your field is when you misrepresent what you're able to do by calling it antidepressant. Now it's it's gone and extended way beyond just psychiatry. We have like over 80% of antidepressants are being prescribed by primary care doctors. But when we talk about informed consent and people being able to be informed about the healthcare decisions that they're making, they are taking these drugs under the assumption that they will have antidepressant qualities and most of them are not provided the legitimate harms like i have real concern about emotional blunting and numbing uh, and its potential long-term consequences on sexual functioning for example and 
we're certainly seeing a number of cases that are implicated in you know self injury, suicide, and violence. So your field has failed to adequately be able to communicate the legitimate dangers and then overestimates, overvalues the benefits through language by using words like antidepressant, which is in alignment with the pharmaceutical industry. And it's created, unfortunately, indelible harm. There's been withdrawal. People have hooked on these drugs, can't get off of it. We don't have good adequate data on the long-term consequences, but here we are. It still continues today, and that's where there's a credibility issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still shocked and and crushed at how, how many physicians think that SSRIs are antidepressants. You know, I'm like, these are for anxiety. Yeah, they work for a couple times, a couple types of very specific types of depression. But in general, no, they they aren't dep- antidepressants. You know, they are anti-rumination, anti-panic, anti-anxiety meds. So we get, so like the patients are confused, the doctors are confused, everybody's confused. And, um, you know, a lot of times I'll, I've had, this happens all the time where people will come to me and they'll, you know, come in with horrific depression and they'll say, well, Dr. Hecock, um, my therapist said I should go on an antidepressant. I'm like, you are on two antidepressants, but they might be on like clozapine and lamotrigine, which is an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer. But really those are actually meds that can powerfully um, help with suicidal depression, but nobody thinks of them that way. So that's a thing I've, I've tried to put out on Back from the Abyss for patients and families and, and docs and therapists to, to help them think about, I mean, even just the labels are so confusing. Um, and then, you know, I think you bring up a really good point about informed consent. And this is something nobody talks about. I'll just put it out there. I haven't heard you talk about it, but I think where informed consent gets really sketchy is with s- severely mentally ill. Because, you know, we have people, you know, um, treatment-resistant schizophrenia, um, who are probably not able to make good medical decisions for themselves. And, you know, we, you know, I regularly do this. I might say, I want young clozapine. You know, I might say this has a white blood cell issue, da, da, da. But do we go into all the potentially scary side effects of some of these really serious meds with the very mentally ill? We don't because it's so hard to get them to take the meds anyway, especially the people with, you know, chronic psychosis. And, and that's kind of a hush secret in in psychiatry is that the sickest people get the least informed consent i don't know how that would change because again i treat a lot of these people like there are these a lot of folks you know who would come in my office and say i don't have any illness meanwhile they just got out of jail or they just tried to cut their penis off or they just ran naked in the woods and were found by ems you know with hypothermia um so yeah they, i agree that with informed consent is complicated um even just telling people you know what i tell people with ssris is you're very likely going to have orgasm problems. Um, and that's people giggle and laugh. Like, oh, you're like, oh, that's, that's uncomfortable. I'm like, no, like if you, we do this med, it's going to be hard for you to come. Like that's, that's very likely. Um, and, you know, I've had many people say, no one's ever told me that. Or people come to me on a bunch of SSRI trials. They said, nobody's talked about orgasm. And I say that we're going to talk about orgasm. And when I have med students and psych and P's rotate with me, I say always in the first, um, session first evaluation we're going to talk about sexuality I, you know i want you to ask about orgasm because i want people to realize because that is a huge issue with psych meds sexual functioning and you're right so many mental health um, or so many primary care docs and psychiatrists don't ask about arousal and 
an orgasm, that's a huge deal. Like if the only side effect you have from your SSRI is that you can't come, that's a terrible side effect. Yeah. And I, I want to get back to that, that statement you made about serious mental illness. But before that, um, you know, I think my concern is, is that those side effects can become permanent and we have a, enough evidence to know that they're permanent in a specific percentage of people who develop those symptoms. We're giving those drugs to kids, kids who are in primary areas of like identity development, sexual development, puberty. And we're seeing this uptick pretty significantly in teens either identifying as like asexual uh, non-binary. No one's really talking about its implication in the multiple psychiatric drugs that they're being provided that could impact sexual development, identity development. So um, the, the, the propensity for them to be permanent and when you weigh that with any potential benefits is where I, I think that I, you know, I really have concerns about their value in society. But always, it always gets to the point where um, you know psychiatrists will say, "Well, yes, but there are you know really severely ill people that aren't responding to other treatments, and we have to consider improving their quality of life." And so, my thoughts on on these drugs, and this is how I communicate it. It's not that I'm anti-drug in any respect. There might be situations um, under certain conditions with certain people where it can be beneficial. And I describe them generally in terms of this. When, when the condition is extremely severe and can impact one's life or the life of others, like let's say that it's a severe manic episode, someone's delusional, they're at risk of like harming themselves or others based on the mental state that they're in, like cutting their penis off or running around naked, then um, you know drugs like that can induce a, a reaction neurochemically, neurologically that can suppress or alter, change that physiological state that is stabilizing. And in that respect, I would agree. Like that might be an absolute necessary form of treatment. But I see it as short term, generally, because I think the long term outcomes are quite poor in crisis situations and um, rare. So in a, in a society that would be using these drugs in a responsible way, I think the drugs would be rarely prescribed. And in, in all likelihood, most people would not be interacting or know somebody who's on psychiatric drugs. In reality, almost everybody now knows somebody who's taking some drug. We're, like, we're moving up into the like one in four in American society on some form of psychiatric drug. I mean, that's scary because that's way outside the bounds of any safety or efficacy. Yeah, I think way too many people are on way too many meds, way too many psych meds, way too many diabetes meds, heart. And I, I really think uh, it speaks to things are not healthy in 2023. You know, we are not a healthy people. We're not a healthy society. And, you know, this a quick band-aid is to give somebody a diabetes med or a weight loss med or a psych med. Or I really think that the, the psych med issue, the one in four, is actually um, an example of a much bigger ill of the people are not well. And when you look at rates of diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease, like, people are sick. Like, we are a sick society. And again, people come in for short doc visits and docs like, well, I got a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. We'll give you a med. Again, whether it's a primary care doc or psychiatrist or 
even a dermatologist. So I, I do think that's part of a bigger trend. I also think that part of that comes back to who prescribes, and I think you've talked about this, who prescribes most psych meds in America. It's not psychiatrists. It's mostly primary care docs. And you know, they have a really hard job. Uh, they, if you talk to non-primary care physicians about, hey, would you want to work in primary care? They all say, no way. You know, they're doing pap smears and managing blood pressure and diabetes and trying to figure out depression and little kids who can't concentrate in school. And just so it's easy, I think, to beat up on the primary care docs, but you know, they have, they have a hard job. And I think they often use what they got, which is prescription pad, which is, I'm not thinking that's a good idea for so many people they see. So you just made me think of a question. We just got done interviewing Dr. Jessica Taylor, who made the argument that where psychiatry is influential in the U.S. and the U.K., there's higher rates of depression, higher rates of suicide. And you look at countries where there isn't as much influence of psychiatry. They don't have that. So um, are, are you trying to make the case that there's not a psychiatry problem, there's a medication problem in the United States? No, I think it's both. Okay. Yeah. I think uh, there's way too many psychiatrists who would say, I'm a psychopharmacologist. I, you know, I manage meds. Like I have so many patients come to me like, are you, are you my med manager? And that drives me insane. I'm like, no. I said, I, I will manage your meds and I'm going to do 12 other things. But no, if you want a med manager, I'm not your guy. Um, so I think it's a societal thing. I think it's a primary care thing. I think it's a psychiatry thing. Yeah, but the, the um, point I think she was making was that where that influence is more prominent, you would think people would be healthier, they would be happier, and this current, I guess, paradigm isn't really providing solutions for people. It could be actually making them more miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that goes back. I I don't. It's you know, it's chicken or egg, cause and effect. Like, are we are is our medicalization of everything making us sick? Or are we sick and thus we're medicalizing it? I mean, I think it's going both ways. I mean, I've said to, I'm a competitive runner and have been forever. I've said to so many of my patients, I've said, you know, you have the type of depression that if you would go to your house and pack up a backpack and you and I could walk the Colorado Trail for the next six weeks and backpack and talk and go to bed and not do drugs and your depression would go away. Like I, so many people I see live this incredibly unhealthy life. But then we gotta we have to you know work with what we got, which is people are working the night shift and they're smoking a lot of weed and they're living alone and they're on screens and they're overweight and they're eating processed crap and they come in like I feel horrible. And again, I, I'm I and other psychiatrists like me are trying to work hard to be holistic, but there there are a lot of people like, well, all right, you're anxious, here's some anxiety matter. Oh, you're depressed, here's this. Versus like, well, why are they depressed? And I think that's one of the things Will and I talked about in that episode that you referred to Dr. McFarlane is it, to look at why people are depressed, that requires a lot of time. It might take weeks. It might take months. It's not going to happen in a 20-minute visit. Like, what is going on? And, and again, I've talked a lot in my podcast about how depression is not an illness. It's a syndrome. It's a final common pathway. There's 101 ways to get there. And it really matters what's getting you there. It really matters if it's a bipolar one depression or existential despair. Like that's really important to know. Like it, it could look the same phenomenologically, but the treatment is totally different. But I think a lot of those people show up like, Oh, you're depressed. You need an antidepressant. Like, well, maybe they need purpose. Yeah, maybe you, they need, maybe they need a boyfriend. Yeah. You're bringing up really good points. And that's like the limitations of language. Right. And so one of my concerns that I had, I said, I have a love hate with your 
love hate kind of relationship with your podcast is that you just share the love (laughs) (laughs) is you tend to you know fall into that paradigm where you're you're talking about the these conditions as illnesses and the human experience of thought emotion physical sensations as symptoms of illness when I believe it is much more complicated and complex than that, because it, it, even in my field, some uh, our path sometimes to, to healing or overcoming very difficult and challenging emotional experiences or episodes, sometimes that path is very painful. So it's actually like eliciting sometimes strong emotions, uh, like when we think about the value of exposure-based treatments, whether it's in trauma or OCD or just transcending fear, And I think there's really good neuroscience around that specifically, you know, around like learning models of fear extinction and and those, those things like the integrated nature of mind, body and experience are really critical. And so as a psychologist, I'm often trying to facilitate that new learning through experiences. And to do that, we have to sometimes create this new relationship to what we're feeling, what we're thinking an allowance of those emotions without judgment, without identifying them as symptoms of something that's a problem. Because I believe when we start to develop an association with our internal experience as dangerous, then we have a relationship to that that exacerbates the experience, right? So now our internal experience, whether it's our heart rate or our breathing or the, the feeling of, of anxiety, when we view that as dangerous, then we have a reaction to it. So the paradigm of trying to see mental health as reduction in certain emotions or thoughts or experiences, I think in the long term creates more harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think part, partly what you're getting at is this idea of hyper focus on symptoms and if you look at the dsm it's all about do you have these five symptoms and not these three and these two and uh that reminds me i've had a couple med students rotate with me and they say well why don't you have um uh, forms to monitor you know hamd or phq or like where's your paperwork where's your data you know for symptoms and i and i tell them i said you know i ask about symptoms but i'm not actually that interested in symptoms a lot of psychiatrists are deeply interested in symptoms like those are the med managers but But what if they weren't symptoms yeah, well, that's a great example. Like people come in and, you know, someone came into me the other day, she started crying. She's like, I'm so exhausted. I'm so exhausted. I'm so exhausted. And as, as I listened to her, I listened to her. I said, I said, you've got the American disease. She's got four kids. She works 60 hours a week. She's a single mom. You know, she's just like, you know, and uh, she's like, I think something's wrong with me. I said, maybe. I said, but you've got the American disease. Like you're so tired. And she does have the symptoms. She's so tired. She's so fatigued. She's so worn out and at times gets hopeless, but is she depressed? Like, does she need meds? I mean, I mean, in this, this case, this woman needed less on her plate or even you people come in, you know, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. And to me, that's like, well, that's the beginning. Well, what do you even mean by that? Do you mean you're demoralized? You're sad. You're empty. You're numb. You didn't get what you want you're lonely. Um, again, cause patients throw around these words, depressed, anxious. Um, I'm so OCD, you know, I'm so ADD. It becomes them. Yeah. Right. But more often than not, I find when people, when patients are focused on their symptoms, first of all, they're not even using the right words. And 20, 30 minutes later, they're leaving like, Oh, I guess you're right. I'm demoralized. Right. You know, I, I saw that a lot during COVID. So many people came, I'm depressed. And about half of them that left, 
I said, you're demoralized and that's shitty, but, and that's a thing, but that's not depression. Yeah. So Dr. Heacock, I know that you have an interest in like the treatment of trauma and I know you do a lot of psychotherapy yourself and you're, you're combining it with uh, new innovative therapies like psychedelics and so forth. So a great example of how, uh, you know, I'm kind of against the pathology of the emotional experience is to kind of think about things from almost like a, a evolutionary biology perspective. So we've kind of evolved um, in order to be able to procreate and stay alive. And so there's a lot of experiences that we have. So I think about someone who might have undergone like a traumatic situation where their safety or their security was threatened. Well, then we would certainly expect them to be hypervigilant, to have anxiety and fear. They would replay it in their mind to determine like, how can I prevent this from ever happening again? And you would avoid anything that is associated with that traumatic event based on safety. And obviously that can then become generalized into one's own personal life and it can create severe impairment. And I think the idea of looking at those symptoms from a perspective of an illness is problematic. And I think in and itself is going to exacerbate PTSD symptoms. Instead, we want to look at that as something that is biologically, evolutionarily beneficial given the circumstances and part of the recovery process then would be to obviously create new learning, right? So yeah, this situation was dangerous on the, under that condition and you can still recover from this and move, go on to live a full life. You could love, you can take risks under a number of things, but it requires us to process that emotionally. It requires us to examine the way we're thinking about our lives. It, it certainly requires exposure into new situations that were otherwise avoided because it maintains the condition. And I've been doing a lot of research over my 20-year career into you know how to work with people who have PTSD. And there's not a lot of good evidence that's going to suggest that trying to uh, use a biological agent to try to alter the symptomatology provides much of value in treatment. In fact, I think there's more evidence that it's going to create harm. So I just want to get your, your thoughts on that perspective of viewing these, this as symptoms. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much in that <laughs> you just said. Uh, I guess one thing, this is a little off topic, but I'm going to rein it in. So I did my training, my psychiatry training in the early aughts, and we didn't get, I think in the early aughts, we just didn't think about trauma much. So yeah, we learned about PTSD, blah, blah, but um, But what I've come to realize is a lot of what I saw as treatment resistance over the last 15, 20 years was trauma. It was people in chronic dissociation that we were calling treatment-resistant depression. It was people in the hot symptoms, the sympathetic fight-flight that had you know panic disorder that wasn't responsive to treatment. Uh, and, and it's become more and more clear, and I've talked a ton about this on Back from the Abyss, that the trauma is a different beast. You know, It's not an illness. I agree that's not an illness. It's not a disease but it, it is a derangement. It can become a derangement of our, you know, of our nervous system and psyche. Um, and I, and I was exposed to in the MDMA work with maps that I'd never thought of this concept, but the idea of the inner healer or the inner healing intelligence. And there's, you know, psychologists have written about that, this idea that, you know, through most of human history, there was no PTSD treatment. There were no groups or meds or ayahuasca or mushrooms. Like people were getting killed and, beaten and raped and pummeled and and they just figured it out or they didn't uh and surely there were people that ha- would have met criteria for some kind of ptsd 
um, back in the day, but, but you're right now we've named it and it's surely become a lot more common, but coming back to what I was just explaining, it's becoming more and more clear, particularly with the emerging psychedelics work that, that right, that this whole uh, allopathic medication treat the symptoms model does not work when trauma is primary at all. Like you, you need to address it a completely different way, usually somatically. If you look at what's happening in, in psilocybin therapy or MDMA therapy or ketamine therapy, it's not like anything that's ever happened in a psychiatrist's office. Like it, it's, it's much more like a, it's much more like a shamanistic thing. Like it, it's a psycho-spiritual thing. It's a somatic thing. It's not based on symptoms at all. It's not based on history or really even talking or it's like going deep, deep into the inner healing intelligence that we all have that has you know, made us the badass species that we are. Cause you know, we are the descendants of tens of thousands of generations of survivors and we we're the strongest of the strong. But yet you look, you look at psychiatry or you look at medication prescriptions and diagnoses and you think, wait, are we the sickest of the sick? Because we are the descendants of some really amazingly tough humans. So, so you sound like we're in agreement when you're, this is where I get confused with your podcast. Cause I hear you say these things and mm-hmm. I think it's uh it's brilliant. And I, I really agree with it because I think you're, you're considering the complexity of it and, uh, you know how resilient we all are and our capabilities and to think about it that way would almost kind of move us past this limitation from categorical illnesses that are of of psychiatry and it would expand the paradigm but then i'll listen to a an episode you have and it'd be like the top 10 psychiatric drugs oh, and you know such good ones. they're and, so good and then, and, <laughs> and you'll and i really feel like you are really overvaluing potential benefits to those those drugs like you're selling it and i've heard this before it's part of my concern is that um and it's not to say that there aren't some anecdotal evidence that it could have helped somebody under certain conditions it's just the the generalized like overvaluing of talking about drugs like life-saving and life-changing just does not seem to fit any data science that really exists um, and it seems to contradict maybe, you know, some of the other things that you're talking about on other episodes. In fact, it, it feels confusing to me to know mm. where you stand. Okay, I'll explain that. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so a big motivation of the episode, the 10 best psychiatric meds, was that the vast majority of psychiatric meds I would never use. I think they're too unsafe. They're too toxic. They're too ineffective. And so constantly people are coming to me. I'm the fifth, eighth psychiatrist and this whole bucket of meds. And I'm, and I say, look, most of these are worthless or toxic. And you know, even when I have med students and psych and P's rotate with me, I've been saying this for years. I like, I like, you need 10 meds, maybe 11, like throw the other hundred meds in the toilet, get rid of them. Um, and so, so part of it was sort of an exercise in, um, in par- parsimony uh, and trying to have a small list, but a lot of it was a harm reduction because I was trying to put the word out there for people that if you're, if your med isn't on this top 10, you should be, and I even said that at one, like you should be talking to your provider because these are the, in my opinion, are the safest, most effective 10, everything else pales. So if you're not on one of those 10 for again, and then I think that takes us to the second issue. Does anyone need to be on meds? And I'll get to that in a sec. So actually I meant it as a, I really did mean it as a public service, not as like, woohoo, you know, Let's get some more money in Pfizer's pocket and Lilly, and let's let's crank up the Walgreens revenues. It really was. People take so much toxic stuff that is doing nothing. So if you know if you're going to be on meds, please please consider being on one of these ten. Um, 
But again, so back to where you and I might, might disagree. You know, a common thing that I would see in my practice, I'm, I'm sure there were episodes like this in the podcast where I'm meeting with someone who has terrible trauma and has uh, rapid cycling, early adolescent onset, um, seasonal worsening, hypersomnic type, type depression, which you know, we, I call that a bipolar spectrum depression. But it turns out that lamotrigine, lamictal is a home run for that kind of depression. It just is. And I mean, you for how long? Well, so, so that brings this whole other issue. Like how long do you leave people on meds? Yeah. And that's so complicated. I remember I, I, this amazing um, internal medicine attending in, in um, med school. And once on rounds, we saw this guy's on 27 meds and she said, you know what? She's like, any schmo can put someone on meds. She's like, it takes a real doctor to take someone off their meds. And, uh, and that really struck me because I didn't, I'm like, what do you mean? Takes, but I think what she meant is like, you have to really think and you just have to be very prudent and careful and observant and, and also admit that if someone gets worse, it could be because A, that med was really helping or it could be, be no, this is like a, a withdrawal syndrome of them coming off the med made them worse. And again, that can be so difficult to tell. So one of the things that we face all the time is, let's say someone comes in, I'll go back to the same example. Let's say the last seven winners, they've had really disabling depression, had to go out of work, had trouble taking care of their kids, and they sleep too much, and it's early adolescent onset, rapid cycling. So they're a lamotrigine candidate. They're on it. They go through a whole winter without depression. And then they were, we're sitting there in June. And they say, should I stay on Lamotrigine indefinitely? So let me ask you a question and, about Lamotrigine. Now, mm-hmm. um, from what I wear, it's used to treat seizures. It's an anticonvulsant, correct? That's been uh, maybe approved or used as off-label in the psychiatric community. What do you think is, if you've seen some success with a certain subset of people, uh, you used the word rapid cycling, um, so you see it for a subset of people, you feel like it's really been able to be helpful. What is happening biochemically to actually provide that type of reaction? And then my question is for, for how long? Obviously, we're always, brain is seeking homeostasis. There's an adaptation process. We probably don't even fully aware, are aware of how everything is so uniquely integrated in a way that's supposed to be serving us. These trials are maybe 12 weeks, right? So they're relatively short term and they're being measured with symptom reduction checklists. So my question is, what's happening? Who's it going to work for? Under what conditions and how long? And what's the science base for this? Yeah. So I think it's very interesting and probably relevant that the two of the arguably two of the most effective antidepressants in psychiatry, lamotrigine and ketamine, work on one of the same chemical systems in the brain, which is the NMDA glutamate receptor. Now, what exactly are they doing at that receptor? How does that relate to the syndrome of depression? There's a whole lot of theories on that. And I I do think that our understanding of brain-mind is about at the level if you know if someone asks you, hey, how does a car work? Well, you drive it up to the gas pump, you put gas in it, then you get it, you put your seatbelt on, you turn on the key. That's how a car works. Like, mm, not really. But that's kind of the level we are 
because you know we can say oh lithium affects ion channels or lamotrigine blocks the nmda receptor blah 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 you know but what is like how does that translate to changes in psyche and mind who knows who knows but it, it is very interesting in my work that, when, again, when people come in with this really common pattern of, of seasonal worsening and hypersomnia, ketamine and or lamotrigine is almost always incredibly effective. And so then the question is not, it's not about efficacy, it's more what you were just saying a few minutes ago, how long do you do that? And, you know, and I, again, I can't speak for what other psychiatrists are doing. I'm sure there's psycho, psych, excuse me, psychiatrists who just say, okay, stay on this forever. I try to have an ongoing discussion with people and I'll say, okay, look, it's the summer. You do well in the summer. Do you want to taper it off at the summer? Do you want to stay on it? Like, you know, sometimes we'll even just pull out a sheet and make a plus minus risk where the pluses of staying on it, the minuses, you know, are other people doing that? My guess is some psychiatrists are doing that. A lot aren't. Um, and, and one of the reasons I, you know, Lamotrigine made number one on my top 10 list and that I love it is not only it's effective, it's so stinking safe because a lot of psychiatric meds have terrible side effects for sure. In fact, a lot of the most effective psychi psychiatric meds have terrible side effects. Like I would, I would never want to be on them. So there's, so I'm always looking, and that's that top ten list was part of that. Where a sweet spot between efficacy and safety and tolerability. That said, there's medicines on that list that you know can cause seizures, can cause your bone marrow to collapse, you know, that can cause you get diabetes. You know, it's, uh, and you know, uh, yeah, I guess it's complicated. You know, it's. How, and, and that's, I, think, I think that's my concern, right, is that it's very, this is very experimental. And, you know, even you have a hard time being able to really communicate what it's doing, who it's going to be most effective for, long-term safety, and when to get somebody off of it. And most of what I'm seeing, even with Lamotrigine, it's not a standalone treatment. You know, they're combining that with, you know, Polypharm polypharmacy, three, four, five, six, seven different drugs, and some of them are developing adolescence. But I do want to I do want to transition um, into psychedelics, and I'll, you're the first person I have on the podcast who can speak intelligently of it. Uh, I'm a spiritual man. I I've had a number of profound spiritual experiences that have occurred for me over the past three years. I've mentioned some of them on the the podcast, I, I meditate, uh, I try to connect with nature, um, really believe that there's a, a, a divine soul within all of us. I think purpose and meaning in our lives is actually extremely critical for mental well-being. I question whether we, in our secular society and modern capitalism, that where a lot of our misery is related to spiritual emptiness in a lot of ways, and we have a growing problem with fear, and mood related to disconnection from people, nature, and purpose. So with all those being said, the, the psychedelic community seems to be more aligned with an understanding of some of those connections, and sometimes it's even facilitated by the therapy in itself, which allows us to get into some interesting conversations about maybe that form of treatment is something that can help some people. But again, I also come from it from a scientific and ethical perspective where I'm concerned that this is the next fad. The next fad that is being promoted in, in psychiatry and it is being utilized in ways that 
you know, don't really serve people and people are, are turning to it for a quick fix. So I'm going to, you know, sit back and listen for a little bit. Um, cause I think our listeners have to really understand what the, what this is, how it's, how it's helping people uh, and get your thoughts and experiences on it. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to just launch into? Yeah, <laughs> actually, you know, Craig, Craig, let me just give you some, uh, some perspective. I was just on a trip out to California and one of my old neighbors is a, um, a clinical social worker. So he does therapy and he was getting um, kind of like certification or training in uh, MDMA and ketamine uh, therapy. And I was surprised because he told me that he actually had to take ketamine um, during one of his sessions and it was part of the learning experience. And he seemed very uh, open about it in terms of a, a new approach that could be very beneficial based on the experience that he personally had. So I'm, I'm wondering what that connection was to you that drew your interest into it and then how you're applying it. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's an essay question. <laughs> yeah. I get part of, I mean, it starts just with uh, at age 18, I had a psilocybin experience that was life changing that I've talked about at length on the podcast, but I'll just say that for now. And just had a sense that, that, psychedelics might play a role in my career life somehow some way but you know then fast forward fast forward 20 years 18 years i was applying to med school and um, i went to med school to be a psychiatrist which is not common (laughs) but uh i i was interviewing with the guy who wrote the book spirit molecule um who did the first dmt studies on humans and i ended up being in his dmt study dmt is the active ingredient ayahuasca super powerful tryptamine psychedelic and when I was in that study, I told him, I said, I want to work with psychedelics someday, be a psychiatrist. And he said, that's, that's decades away. Um, but then, again, fast forward to about 96, I'm sorry, 2016, um, I was working at the Wholeness Center in Fort Collins, and Scott Shannon, who's one of the docs there, said, hey, do you want to work with MDMA and do the MAPS study, which I knew about. And so he said, we're going to be a site. And... And shortly thereafter, Scott said, hey, we should start doing ketamine treatment. He was a real trailblazer. So right around the same time in 2017, I started on the MAP study and doing ketamine treatments. And that just changed my perspective completely. So, and also to your point, you just mentioned about therapists and training doing these substances. I think that's critical. Now, I don't think you need to take a blood pressure med to to prescribe a blood pressure med or take Prozac necessarily to prescribe Prozac. But if you're going to be with someone in a psilocybin or MDMA experience, I do think, or ketamine, I think you should have experienced it yourself. Because one, it is such a powerful, soul-stirring, unusual experience. And two, I think you see, you can see how vulnerable it is. You are so vulnerable when you're in that state. And, and I think when therapists get that kind of experiential training, when they start working with people, they, they can realize, okay, I, I have people's like safety and psyche in my hands. And I need to be really mindful of that. Um, and then, I, you know, I've had some really powerful healing experiences myself. One I talked about in the podcast, I, I was attacked by my German shepherd last fall out of the blue, just viciously attacked me. And I couldn't, I couldn't function. I was just in an acute sympathetic crisis. And um, I did a ketamine treatment. And um, during the ketamine treatment, thousands of, thousands of little German shepherds bit me all over my body. And, and at one point I thought, Oh, this is the exposure. <laughs> so, and I had just like 30 minutes of being attacked by thousands of little German shepherds all over my body. And within 24 hours, my 
fight flight was gone. In fact, the day after that, I was walking home from work and another dog lunged out at me and tried to bite me and I was okay. And I just thought, what happened? Yeah. So let me ask you, um, what is happening? I've never done a psychedelic, um, Mm -hmm. but I felt I've had psychedelic experiences through meditation, which we can get into. Um, what is, what is happening that leads you to believe there's a profound experience that occurs from it? Yeah. Well, I think again, we, we have to talk about this. I mean, there's sort of the brain uh, effects of psychedelics. There's the the mind psyche, and then there's psychospiritual. And I have to say, I was not ever a spiritual person until I started working with these substances, but I have become a spiritual person because it's the only way to describe what's happening. Because you can say, oh, it's a, you know, it's the serotonin 2A receptor, and it's increasing BDNF, and you, you can come up with all these fancy... Ca- but, but That's what Andrew Huberman says. Yeah, right. And those that's not untrue. But when you sit with people or you go through it, you see, oh, no, that is not. I mean, that may be what's happening. It's way beyond that. It is way beyond that. You know, you're tapping into greater energies, forces, God, spirit, anima. I mean, you could call it a lot of things. But, you know, one of the things you experience, everybody does with these substances, like it's, it's so much bigger than you life is every and there's something so deeply comforting about that like if you look at the psilocybin research they're doing with end-stage cancer patients that's something they all say they pretty much all say i'm okay to die because i know like it's so much bigger than me it's so much beyond me it's not about me like i'm just gonna churn back into this sort of the universal animus spirit god energy like and there's great comfort in that. And that's so cool. That's so different than we think about in Western psychology and psychiatry, you know, where it's all about the individual and the individual experience and the story and, you know, this, and, and that actually is why I, do you know the Emerald, the podcast? No. The Emerald. Oh, you have to check it out. Oh, it's so good. But he, he talks about this idea of, and the, the episode to start with on that is called um, the revolution will not be psychologized. And he does a critique of the Western view that it's all about the individual and the person and the psyche and the story, but that it's actually way, way bigger than that. So I think that's, yeah, I think there's healing happening in the brain and mind metals, brain and mind. But the, what really changes things for people is the psychospiritual. And that's what people talk about after their MDMA experience or their DMT experience. That, that's, what, that's what shifts the needle. So does that give us some insight into, you know, some of the factors that influence, you know, mental suffering? I mean, is it a, a disconnection from each other? And is it a disconnection from a greater purpose? Overwhelmingly, I think what drives people into the mental health system, if you're just talking about a blanket, is some struggle with fear and uh, like emptiness, depression, right? Like, it's those two like experiences. Now they can lead to so many different things, right? You can become OCD and fixated on trying to control your life in a certain way to to control for fear, right? You can you can turn to substances, alcohol, drugs as a way of changing the, that feeling and trying to just relax or integrate into society, eating disorders and so forth. Like there's a number of problem reactions we have to the f- experience of fear loneliness, depression, boredom that drive people into the psychiatric system. But if, if, we're, if you're seeing 
benefits when someone has a, a, a spiritual experience, doesn't that maybe open the door for us to better understand where we need to go in culture and society in order to, for us to feel like this life has meaning? Mm-hmm. Have you read The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt? That's a great book. But Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist, talks about, uh, he says we are 80-20. We're, I think he said 80-20. We're 80% tribal primate or 20% honeybee. And what he means by honeybee is like there's a part of us that just wants to buzz together in this greater hive. Like we want to we lose ourselves in something big, whether that's a football stadium or concert or, you know, a synagogue or um, or a mushroom experience, or we, we desperately don't want to just be this tribal primate all the time. We want to get lost in the big hive, like the buzzing of all. And, um, I think that's one of the things that psychedelics can do is, is bring you back to your honeybee. Like you're just one little buzzing part of something that's way, 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 way bigger than you. And it, it's ecstatic and it's a relief because, you know, in some, if you don't have an experience, it could be like, well, that sounds so scary that I'm so insignificant, but actually, no, it's the op. And you know, this, it's the ops. Like, Oh, it takes all this pressure off me. It's not just about me. It's so much bigger than me. Yeah. So this was my experience in meditation was how we're, we're all connected, which is just, I mean, I can use my language to state it, but it doesn't do it justice. This feeling of connection but um, the oneness of the universe and the experience was, a, was profound. But I transcended fear through this. Like nothing seems too big, you know, for me right now is, is, the, is the way I can describe it. I feel like the potential of doing great things in love is almost limitless. And it creates an excitement. So even the little things like, the value, what I'll get from a psychotherapy session, from doing therapy, is a, a level of wholeness and elation that I can't get anywhere else, to be honest. Almost like, okay, I am doing the work that I'm meant to do. But it comes out of a, a connection to that person and a love energy that's created that I really did learn in meditation. Not only meditation, but what comes after the meditation. So sometimes I just ask for things, whether it's wisdom or connection, and a book will come my way. And I'll read this book, and it'll be a powerful learning that exists. So it's this nonstop journey of experiences, but it's added purpose. It's added meaning. And the little things, the neurotic kind of things that you would worry about in your small self seem to kind of dissipate and fade away. And that's just been a profound experience. And I haven't had to do a psychedelic for it. Um, I know I've had to do a lot of different things to be able to achieve it. Like before I came here, I did a cold bath, for example, cold plunge. And I think there's all these areas to, in psychiatry, because I do, I'm not anti-psychiatry. I believe psychiatry can actually do so much more for society if it broke outside of its limitations. Because I think we can try to, um, we could try to provoke biological mechanisms to enhance performance and well-being in so many different aspects. I, I just don't know if drugs are it, but um, I don't even know where I'm going I, with I, this. I actually, <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the idea of the experience. It's almost like you're taking a vacation without the travel, which I think we could all appreciate, you know, some time off and just to kind of like decompress a little bit. 
But mm-hmm. I, I, the question comes up because you were able to participate in that phase three clinical trial. So based on that experience, you know, how can a clinical study effectively incorporate the placebo control when evaluating the effects of MDMA? Because you would think the participants would know whether or not they received it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, well, the, the short answer is there's, you can't. Okay. Now there there was some talk at the beginning, I think, of phase two of using an active placebo of u- using Adderall, which actually I think would have been brilliant because if you did Adderall versus MDMA, people could have got Adderall like, ooh, like I my mood is elevated, I feel good, I feel a drug, you know, but but theoretically it should do nothing, you know, to help people. But they decided against an active placebo. Um, but no, it, it, it you. It was vastly different. In fact, sitting in sessions when people got placebo was so hard mm. because there's so much sadness. Because if you're in the placebo arm, you're gonna they the the participants knew that all three sessions over three months were gonna be placebo. <laughs> and so, and that you know they had to go off their meds to be in the study. And I did a podcast on that about a woman of patient of mine who was in the MAP study in the placebo group. She went off her meds and had a near fatal suicide attempt. Oh. Did she go uh, off her meds too fast? Well, I think, you know, this is actually really interesting. I, in retrospect, now she clearly has bipolar one and t- horrific complex PTSD. I so wanted her to get in the study that I really downplayed the bipolar stuff. And I told the medical, and I've talked about this in the podcast. I said, you know, I, I really sold it to maps. Like, oh, she just has trauma. Even there's a part of me like, mm, and it turns out, and I've, I've you know, been treating her for years since she, she actually has also has a bipolar mood disorder. What so, is bipolar? Yeah. I hate to, I hate to jump in here, but like we yeah. throw that out there. How does someone, you know, why does somebody have bipolar one? Yeah. The latest, I heard a podcast on this recently. Very interesting. They're looking at one of the key mechanisms as being the clock genes, the circadian rhythm genes. Cause we've known that there's something deeply tied together with sleep and mood. I mean, anybody who works in this field knows that. And we know that the arguably the core feature of bipolar disorder is this: the sleep mood dials are all over the place, like sleeping 14 hours up for five days at a time, normal sleep. So there seems to be at least one of the genetic abnormalities, there seems to be some derangements in the, in the circadian rhythm genes that control sleep cycles and thus mood. But again, like sort of like my example of how does lamotrigine work or how does ketamine work? I mean, we can say, oh, it works like blah, 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 blah. But like, actually, how does it work? You following Christopher Palmer's work at all? Mm-hmm. You know, so like his book, Brain Energy and you know, Metabolic Syndrome. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. some complicated science in there. And um, But being able to cure, I'll use the word cure, or bring people into remission of symptoms for some of these severe psychiatric conditions like bipolar one disorder through a ketogenic diet is certainly like fascinating type research. And I, I think the concern I have with uh, how psychiatrists are communicating bipolar one disorder is they're saying you have this for life and you have to be on this drug for life. But when you look into some of the historical data, they're I think close to 85% of uh, bipolar one manic depressive episodes were single episodes back in 1950 and only required, um, you know, one hospitalization and it was returned to uh, remission. It seems like in the, in the post drug 
era of trying to treat bipolar one, our outcomes are worsening. We're taking something that could have been episodic, could have been um, maybe a, an alternative viewpoint or treatment, and we're turning it into a chronic condition because we're placing people on these drugs where this is like I brought up the question before for how long, right? Because at some point the drug doesn't work anymore, even if it stabilized the condition initially and we're upping the dose and we're adding another. And before you know it, we have chronic health conditions from the combination of drugs. And so that's why people like me who question the psychiatric diagnosis system or the idea of mental illness, it's, it's a label, it's a construct, but we haven't really identified what's influencing it to be able to target it. You know, like, yeah. if, like syphilis, for example, created psychosis before you knew syphilis existed. You know, it was just treated as like insanity. Mm-hmm. So like we have, to, we have to be able to advance ourselves in the, in the way we communicate this we can talk about, yes, you are experiencing mania and we can do this now to try to stabilize it, but it is not the answer because mm-hmm. we don't have the evidence that it's the long-term answer. And we have yeah. to be able to op- be open to alternative ways to be able to help people who are repeatedly having maybe mania or depressive episodes. Yeah. yeah I've just had this image of, you're right, with bipolar one, our understanding of it, it's almost like if our understanding of bears, let's say black bears work, well, they get in the garbage, um, they are up in trees, they usually leave you alone, but they, sometimes they don't and they eat a lot of things and they're usually not dangerous. Like, well, those are all true, right. but does that describe, and I, I agree. Like I think is when we talk about bipolar one, we can say, Oh, it often skips generations could be clock genes, da, da, da. but like, what is the, what is it at the core? We don't know. Like, and it may not even be what we think it is. Yeah. yeah I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, there's something else. Oh, so we were um, talking about this. the chron- chronicity. Can we just say something about that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think again, it's so complicated. One of the things I tell people when they come in with what looks like they may have a mood disorder, you know, I'll say, I think you have a mood disorder. It's in my mind that could be like having migraines. Like, if you have migraines, are you gonna have migraines your whole life? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're just gonna have them when you're uh, pre perimenopausal. Maybe you're just gonna have them when you drink red wine. Uh, I think what's harder is when somebody comes in, here's an example. Like let's say somebody's had two bonafide, bonafide manic episodes with hospitalization. They come in and you're, you're having a family meeting and the question is he or she's fine. Now the patient, does she need to be on meds and what's the long-term prognosis? And that's hard. It's complicated. I'm sure you can pull up data. You can say, well, you have a 13 or 45% risk of relapse off meds or whatever. But then, but then what you also have to look at is, what's the cost of a relapse? Because it's one thing if you relapse into depression and you go to bed for three weeks and ignore your kids. It's another thing if you you know, um, drain your 401k and get a bunch of hookers and crack and drive down the highway the wrong way, which that happens with bipolar one, you know? So uh, again- Have you I, been talking I, to Sean? Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't drain my 401k. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, I think prudent care would be and, and this is part of informed consent. It's like, yeah. if you're going to go on lithium, here's the risk. Um, here's our best guess that you could have a manic episode off this. What would a manic episode look, you know? And I have people, I definitely have people who say, you know what? I don't want prophylaxis. And I say, okay. Like I have a couple people right now I'm very worried about, but I say, how about we just meet every four months and, you know, they have, we have an early warning system to parents. They're not on meds. They've had really scary episodes in the past. Like, you know, let's just stay in touch. And but- yeah, I mean, I think these are real legitimate questions. And um, I, I have read some data that's 
that suggests that sometimes like up to three quarters of mania are induced by drug use. And so if the person Weed. weeds I mean, one of them, see, I think it's the thing. Like I've talked about a lot about in the podcast. I mean, Colorado's weed city. And, yeah, I think we should get into that because a lot of our listeners are international and uh, legalization of marijuana in the United States, is, it's a state-by-state thing. So Colorado gives you a, a unique perspective on what's happened over the last five to eight years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've talked about this on the podcast, but it, the, in brief, you know, back in the day when I was in college in the 80s, um, weed was weak, 4 to 6% by weight, THC had a lot of CBD. I mean, people flipped out from, from marijuana, but mostly not. But now like you go into dispensary in Fort Collins, it starts at 20, 25, 28%, which is, you know, it, it would be like if when I grew up in the eighties, there was only beer and now there's only tequila, mm. which, you know, and so you can, it's hard to even find uh, weed that's, that's not shockingly potent. But then what's, you know, what's happening now is a lot of my young people, they don't smoke flour. I've learned that the hard way. Cause I can't just say, Hey, do you smoke weed? It's like, do you dab? Do you use concentrates? Do you vape THC? Because it's way cheaper just to get pure THC concentrates. And that is lighter fluid on the, whatever the manic and psychotic, psychotic circuits are in the brain, those dopamine circuits. I mean, pure THC lights that on fire in certain people. And, uh, you know, I, I think THC has been a, unmitigated disaster psychiatrically I, I do believe it's probably okay for helpful for chemotherapy nausea and other glaucoma or whatever but you know one of the things and if i were the czar of colorado i would get rid of medical marijuana because i think it sends the wrong message i think make it recreational fine but let's call a spade a spade and say look alcohol it's not medicine you know weed is not medicine but you know all over colorado the dispensaries have these green crosses. They're called mm-hmm. like green medicine, green, green care. It's like, no, again, from if a lot of, most people can use it and not have a psychotic or manic episode, but you know, three to 4% of the population roughly has the genetic predisposition to, to lose their mind on these, these THC concentrates. And very few people are talking about that. And what I see, I'm really convinced that why we're seeing a lot more, I think we are seeing more, mood instability, serious illness, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a lot of it's weed. I think there's a lot of people, you know, there's a big study that came out in American Journal of Psychiatry recently that estimated 10% of all cases of schizophrenia in the U.S. where the final trigger was weed. Um, so, you know, what is that? That's like 400,000 people. A powerful statement. And yeah. um, I guess I'm curious. So the adolescents using... Um, marijuana in Colorado, are you seeing any type of increase on your side? Because now they're entering into adulthood. So they maybe have had three or four years of, of maybe chronic use, not even recreational use. I guess that's the, where you would separate. Like somebody that's using marijuana every single day to, to function, that could have some long-term you know, side effects on them. Mm-hmm. Are, are you seeing something in that area? Well, yeah, I'm seeing a couple things. Is One is you know, so many people are, especially young people, are using the vaping or dabbing the pure concentrates, which even if they're stable on meds, which I know, Roger, you would think that's not a thing, but, like, but they will end up hospitalized. They'll end up running around naked in the snow. I mean, I, I, I've told some of those stories on Back from the Abyss that THC is horrifically destabilizing for a subset of the population. And, you know, and so to work in mental health in Colorado is to be hit in the face constantly with people who 
seemingly are having a first break or ongoing breaks, you know, that's fueled by their marijuana use. And it's a hard sell because it's medicinal. So I can't tell you how many times I tell people like, look, you, you have to stop using marijuana. Well, helps me, you know, I have a medical card. Da, 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 da. Like, oh, it's not medical. It's not medical. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry. I wanted to go back to the uh, MDMA yeah. uh, therapy or, or, or ketamine. I, I know you use it for PTSD. Um, are there certain situations when it's not appropriate? Which one? Because they're very different. So uh, let's, uh, let's stay okay. with ket- ketamine. Let's, yeah, let's stay that's... with ketamine because based on personal experiences, people I've spoke to have um, done ketamine treatment. And I wonder if it's it being applied universally instead of for specific um, you know, treatments. It, let's use PTSD as the example. But what about like for severe grief? Or yeah. depression. Um, so the data you see thrown around is that pe- like sixty to seventy percentage of sixty-seven percent of patients get significant relief, symptom relief with ketamine. Um, I asked my assistant the other day, who does all my IVs, I said, "What what percentage of people that we treat get all the way better, mostly better?" And she's a total skeptic. She's like, "I don't know, ninety-five percent." I said, "Ninety-five? She's like, "I don't know, maybe 90. And um. And I think it's not because we're so amazing. It's because we're really careful about patient selection. And I think all over the country, you can just walk into ketamine clinics and you can just buy like a six pack punch, like, oh, I'm here for ketamine. I'm sad. I'm mm-hmm. grieving. And they'll just give it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the way I do it. I do a whole evaluation. Probably half the people that are interested in ketamine, I say, you know, this is not the thing that's most likely to help you. Because I think there are, there are definitely clinical presentations that, ketamine does really well with and there's other presentations where it doesn't really help yeah so i would you, say that, sorry. yeah go ahead i was just gonna say so the sweet spot for ketamine the people who are sitting in my office i think okay this is almost surely going to work for you people who have the hypersomnic uh, seasonal worsening early adolescent onset bipolar spectrum depression that's what i'm calling it <laughs> but that phenomenon those people uh, and those are also the lamotrigine people. Those people almost always get a really powerful response. People who have suicidality or s- severe—I um, would say suicide, suicidality of all types except borderline field. So any sort of mood, well, yeah, anything except personality pathology. The suicidality almost always resolves with ketamine, at least for a time. Um, and then, you know. I really like the concept of nervous breakdown. You know, they don't talk about that in psychiatry anymore, but I think it's a thing. I think, you know, sometimes we just have so much that we break down. And ketamine is actually good for nervous breakdown. It, when I describe what it does to people, um, how it feels, I said the thing that people say the most is they feel their overwhelm is either gone or it's way dialed down. They feel like their plate's bigger. They feel more resilient. They feel like their battery's been charged. They feel like, oh, okay, I can do this. Like that, That's what you mostly hear from people after ketamine. I think people who have profound anxiety syndromes, there's like if anxiety is the driver, ketamine is not going to help. Mm. Now, if you look on a lot of websites, like, oh, we treat anxiety and eating disorders and OCD, and it's like, no, ketamine might give them a day or two relief, but um, it's really the people that are more, it's a lot of the people 
who you might even think about for ECT. I don't know what you think about ECT, Roger, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can see it. Um, people who are with terrible vegetative symptoms, the ones who are just in bed hibernating, you know, like a black bear waiting for spring, like, that's the sweet spot of ketamine. That's the sweet, th- those people you can almost always help. Now, if I came out to Colorado and uh, you don't have a, any mental health symptoms, but I'm just, uh, uh, yeah. I'm a, well, <laughs> maybe Sean would argue with that, but, uh, but I'm a searcher, right? So like, uh, I want the experience. Can it enhance my life? I think, um, well, there's two main ways to do ketamine sort of psychologically, psychiatrically. So one is to do what I do, which is to do kind of higher psychedelic dose where you fully lose your body in the room and you go into like another dimension. I mean, that doesn't describe it, but kind of does because it's very weird. And then a lot of people are doing low-dose oral ketamine to, as a psycholytic, which is more like what happens with MDMA or some of the psilocybin work. So they're using uh, oral ketamine lozenges to be able to kind of plumb the unconscious, to kind of open up their heart, to connect more with themselves and with their therapist. So I would say, you know, psycholytic work with low-dose ketamine, you might find incredibly helpful and meaningful with no quote unquote, psychiatric illness. I think if you came out and did an IV with me, you might say, whoa, that was, that was crazy. But I don't think it would necessarily move the needle for you in any meaningful way in your life because you don't have severe depression or suicidality. Okay. Would you be open to me coming out there doing a treatment and then us having a podcast? I would love that. Yeah. My sister, my my sister lives in Broomfield. Broomfield. Yeah. Broomfield, Colorado. 45 minutes away. So easy drive. Um, and plan on making a trip anyway so maybe we can set that up that would be an interesting i would would love to record the episode (laughs) (laughs) there Uh, (laughs) no i would i would love that because one of the reasons i i love things about i love about my podcast i love meeting people and connecting it's cool it's really cool to meet you but you know you're on a screen but to have you actually show up in four Collins and we could do a treatment we could go have pizza together that'd be great yeah that would be cool um all right so let me ask another question and this come this came to me in meditation and so i want to this is like a deep thoughts type of thing that um, those who are actually looking beyond themselves outside of them in order to feel better, for example, a drug are not going to find it, but those who are able to find it within them and understand that their experience on this physical plane in this body they have the capacity within themselves to be able to find that meaning and overcome. Is it those who are seeking out external means are going to struggle the most in, in this life? Mm. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's, it's almost like in therapy. If we think, you know, who's a good quote unquote therapy candidate, the people who can own their stuff versus like, like I need to versus like, Oh no, it's the government. It's my wife. It's, you know, all these external things, like they're not great therapy candidates versus the people who are like, oh no, I'm going to own it. Um, but let me just tell a story. I think this might be interesting for both of you and the listeners. I did some psychedelic therapies uh, last year and I really wanted to focus on all the suicides I've had because I've had now 11 suicides and a couple of them were really, really devastating to me. But um I told the psychedelic therapist before, she said, what's your intention? I said, I want all this poison out of me. I said, well, I want this pus and the blood and the poison, like all. And she said, well, that's not how it's going to go. I said, well, how is it going to go? She said, well, it's not going to go like that. And so what happened was as I was going in and confronting 
I was seeing and talking to some of my patients who killed themselves. I got sur- I could feel the love of my people surrounded me in this blanket, and they were as real as this computer is, or this like they can't. And I could feel the love of all my people, and they wrapped around me, and like we got you, we got you, like you're not alone, you're not alone. And that was just the, the most powerful message of the session because I've been feeling so alone in in all these losses and that psychedelic therapy session it was it was internal kind of like you said like i wasn't getting from the drug what the drug said is like no you're full like there's so much love that people have for you there's love inside you with the that what you need to do is let the love fill you up that's how you're going to deal with all this pain of all these suicides it's not that you need to drain all that pus out and that's still something i think about when I'm sitting in with patients, you know, day to day, I'll just have a, I'll be in a really painful time. I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so alone. I'm like, no, I'm not alone. Like I'm full of love. Like, and I just need to, I need to fill up with love. And like, that's the antidote for the pain, not, you know, lancing the pain out of me. I was talking with one of my postdoctoral residents. Actually, no, she's a uh, extern here. Uh, She's a doctoral extern training here at our center. And um, I think she's fabulous, very talented, but she's, certainly a an old mature soul so she um you know she's a she's devout uh judaism she's uh i think has this you know brilliant kind of perspective on things that are much bigger than you know our than the normal pains in in our lives and we're we're talking about how there's so much more to learn in terms of like energy and the energy that is created between two people and I've been experimenting with this, and I, I am kind of an experimental guy in a, in a lot of ways. And some of the some of the things I've also learned through my own meditation and some other spiritual experiences is that I have often been somebody who tries to intervene too much, meaning like I, I, I have a we have a full model dialectical behavior therapy treatment center here. I do DBT and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. So sometimes when I'm at my worst, um, intervening too much, right? And I've learned that, that there are multiple avenues to heal. And I think you do some psychodynamic, psychoanalytic type work too. And now you're talking about some spiritual modalities and ketamine and so forth. I've just been, I've been kind of focusing on like altering my energy around clients who are in emotional pain. And sometimes that's just simply like taking a deep breath and cultivating compassion and love towards that person. And I can almost feel it in my body, like uh, a tingle sound, tingly feeling. And I can see my clients regulate. So I do work with clients who have a hard time regulating intense emotions. And when they're in pain, I can just see them respond to that nonverbal like energy that's cultivated. And there is somewhat of an awakening, I believe, that is occurring globally. People are starting to talk about things more spiritually. But uh, from just a pure empirical perspective, it sounds almost like it's insane, right? But I think we have like cognitive or we have uh, quantum physics and this other like ideas around frequency and time, space, and energy that we have yet to really tap into that gets, when I am deep in this meditative state, I can experience it. I understand those different dimensions, those different realms. And so I think that there, 
going back to your, you know, your just understanding of, of feeling love, love as a healing energy is possible outside of the limitations of what we, we currently know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, as, as my session, my psychedelic therapy session was wrapping up last year, the therapist said to me, she said, look, what your patients need is they just need your presence. They need you to fully be with them and, and they just need to feel your love. Like that's what they mostly need. And I said, but what about this, this? She said, no. And uh, like you, like I sometimes when it just feels like things are kind of falling apart or I don't know what to do, I'll just think, okay, I'm just going to really concentrate on just like being as present and just almost like beaming, like I'm going to beam some love over to them. Yeah. And, and it works. And I think one of the reasons it works, and uh, I don't know if you noticed this during COVID, but I didn't realize until COVID how energetic um, as an energy really that we are or that therapy is because when I started doing a bunch of telehealth during COVID, the sessions would end and I was like, wow, I don't, I didn't feel them at all. Like I felt nothing. Like it was nice to see them. We laughed, cried. But then when they start coming back to my office, I'm like, oh, there you are. Yes. I can feel There you are. I feel you. Yeah. I've stopped doing telehealth because of that. I felt like it's like I lost my powers. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like I think telehealth is to in-person therapy what, you know, watching a nature documentary is to being in nature. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's a reasonable facsimile, but it is not the same as standing in a forest as watching, you know, even if it's HD forest. No. Yeah. Well, listen, we've kept you a long time. I thought this was a fascinating discussion and, you know, we're just really honored to be able to have the conversation. Grateful for you reaching out, uh, I found you fascinating. Um, even though there's areas I think that we practice differently or we have dif- different concerns, I really feel strongly that you are trying to do what's best for the person that's in, in front of you to try to ease their suffering and create some purpose in their life. And, and, and for that, I just want to just say how grateful it is for you to come on. And I'm going to take you up on that. I, oh, I'm, I'm, com- that. I'm coming out and we're going to, I'm going to do ketamine and then we're going to yeah. talk about it. And, uh, I think the listening audience might be fascinated to hear some of the kind of consequences of, of doing that or see how it, how it affected me. So any final oh, words, how, how can people, how can people find you, get in touch with you, listen to your podcast, things like that. Yeah. My podcast is called back from the abyss psychiatry and stories, and it's on all the podcast platforms right now. We just finished season four. We're taking a little summer break, but it will come back up in like three weeks. And then my website, craigheacockmd.com. And uh, you can reach out to me there, email me. And uh, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. My wife said before I came here today, she said, do you think anyone of Dr. McFillin's listeners are actually going to listen to Back From the Best? I said, you know, I said, I think we're going to have a really good conversation. I, I think we're going to connect and like each other. And yeah, I think a few of them might want to check it out. But even if not, it, it's really cool to think that you're coming here and that we could hang out. And um, right, we're on the same team. We, we don't have to agree on everything, but it's so cool that we can talk. Yeah, loved it. Dr. Craig Heacock, well, uh, really appreciative of a radically genuine conversation.